I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch ill-timed parental explosions. Way to spoil the fucking movie. <laughs> right out the gate, last scene of the movie. Boom. Literally. It is It is the most what the fuck moment in the whole movie, and I have no clue I love it. why I love it it's so much, there. and I, the, whole, and the whole last scene is, you know, we talked about this on Return to Oz. It's like, <laughs> uh, oh, it, was it all a dream? Or did I learn, like, did I grow as a person because of this adventure? Although you don't really get to see him much before that, so he whatever. He seems like but a good little kid. Like, I don't like know why. Seems like sh- but yeah, his parents seem kind of disconnected. But you're like, well, maybe he learned something. Was it all a dream? Or did it happen? Who knows? And then at the end, Sean Connery's there winking at him. And his parents blow up <laughs> uh, because they touched the evil. It's like, oh, and that's the end. It's the end of a PG-rated movie for kids. I'll tell you right now, one of the executive producers, not George Harrison, the other one, fought him tooth and nail to please take that out. And at one of the first test screenings, they asked a couple kids what their favorite part was. And the first couple kids or whatever they asked were like, when the parents exploded. And Terry Gilliam was like, ah, leaving it in. <laughs> God. it's that's That is an insane moment in a movie full of insane moments and the fact that he manages to top it in the last like three minutes is just i don't i don't uh, this is gonna be a we're gonna we're gonna get anyways who are we who are we yeah who are we yeah we're so we're we love to watch we're a movie podcast we pick a theme and we do uh, a month's worth of movies around that theme and if we remember we compare and contrast them and this week we already have remembered because I just re- referenced one of the other movies we did this month Return to Oz because it's our last week of our beautiful dark twisted fantasy double fantasy side two dark fantasy movies I mostly from the 80s I think they're all from the 80s except for one what was the one I don't know um <laughs> wait hold on time bandits company of wolves company of wolves is 80s also return to oz Return to Oz is Excalibur 80s. was 80s. All 80s. All 80s. So, hold on. Let me start it over. It's the 80s flashback, our beautiful, dark, twisted fantasy, double fantasy side to back in action. Yeah. We're like the Looney Tunes in that we go back in action. Oh, that's the only way we go. You ever heard of someone going forward in action? <laughs> so, so we... we, we oh, yeah. What movie we are, are we doing? You know what the month is. What is the movie today? Uh, Timmy Benditos. <laughs> Timmy Bandits. <laughs> Timmy Bandits. Time Bandits. Are some somehow our first Terry Gilliam movie? Uh, yeah, I think it's because his movies are largely unclassifiable, and I think that they they all generally fall under a sci-fi horror fantasy scope. But like, I don't think that anyone would look at Brazil and be like, "That's a fantasy movie." Right off the bat, they'd probably be like, "Well, it's a dystopia movie, and we haven't done a dystopia month, and like, we haven't done that many yeah, fantasy we did months." That future sport one. 
He also just probably... hasn't done that many movies. Yes. Mainly because every every movie he makes is a giant fight. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. Like a five-year battle. And his movies are very often auteuristic. You can feel his sense of direction in them uh, for better or for worse. Uh, usually in the earlier movies for better and in his more recent movies for worse. And in this is one of those where do you movies get off? Where I do you get off the, the Gilliam train? Let's see. Probably. Where do you that, uh, get rape, off? Probably that rape movie uh, he made. Tideland? Yeah, probably that one. Oh, yeah, that movie, I don't think I finished it. I think that's one of the few movies. That one is the one that has an intro of Terry Gilliam explaining why everyone who disliked the movie was wrong and an idiot. And then I watched it for 20 minutes. I don't remember there being rape a part of it, but maybe I turned it off before the rape. And I'm like, this is aggressively unpleasant to watch. And sure, I I don't know if that's the point. But regardless, I don't like it, and it's boring, and I hate this. And I actually have some fun with the Brothers Grimm, even though it is that came that came same year. It's super commercial. Like it's not as weird as it should be. It's not as that was funny. his thing with that one, right? He was like, "I'm gonna, I'm taking two big stars. I'm gonna try to make a commercial hit." And everyone went, "No, you're not." <laughs> Yeah, and he shows like grim fairy tales as like yeah. the, the source material. Like it shows you how off the how how much off the boat uh Terry Gilliam has been for a long time that his idea of like commercial success was like I'm gonna tap into the grim fairy tales and I'm gonna cast Matt Damon and Joseph Fiennes. Oh, it was fucking Heath Ledger, sorry, it was Matt Damon yeah. and Heath Ledger. I forgot yeah. Heath Ledger is in that fucking movie. He is, but he and he's like, I'm not going to make the action movie that's really popular. Like you take these fantasy movies in the 2000s. I'm going to kind of make it basically a Mel Brooks movie. It's not really worth hating. Uh, Tideland is worth hating. And then yeah, Tideland. Parnassus was a movie that we all gave, our, uh, you know, the college try to. So uh, I actually because... I like Parnassus. I like. I... I think I watched it years. I never watched it after it came out. And I didn't watch it till probably like three years ago, and I found it incredibly charming, and I was actually surprised how much I liked it. Yeah, I had a, I had trouble finishing it both times I finished it. Um, and uh, I never saw Zero Theorem, but I heard it was like kind of a fun return to form. No, it's so bad. It's like, it's because de- you're like, Brazil, he's doing it again. He's doing dystopia. It's so bad. Is it bad? And then he, so bad. he literally put out his Don Quixote movie last year, and... Nobody cares. So I don't must- think it's not it's not released yet. I don't think is it. No, can, but it it, like, it, it was it got it? festival screenings, and I don't think anybody picked it up or something. I, I I don't know the I don't know Terry Gilliam's whole like Hollywood story right now, but I do know that I after Brothers Grimm, I was like he's uh, he's not the director that I'm going to keep watching, and I consider Twelve Monkeys, Fisher King, Brazil, Monty Python's The Meaning of Life, which he wasn't the main director on, but he did directing. On. He did the short um, at the beginning. Well, he did Holy Grail with Terry Jones. Yeah, and like all of those are on some level my favorite movies of all time. They all would make the top 200 movies of all time. Well, and um, Baron Munchausen is really good, and I like Fear and Loathing too. Yeah, and he and I I, I like both those movies. They're both insane. Um, but we're we're kicking off his sort of insanity trio that he made at the core of his career, which is Yeah, it's Imagination Trilogy. Yeah. Yeah. We're kicking it off and then ending it immediately. <laughs> Yeah, not doing yeah. Brazil yet, although I imagine we will at some point. 
And Terry Gilliam was one of the first people uh, – I kind of imagine this was the, the case with you too. But like – so I discovered him – I don't even know if I discovered him through Monty Python because I saw 12 Monkeys in junior high and I definitely didn't know that uh, – even though I was watching Monty Python in junior high. So I watched 12 Monkeys because it like looked fucking odd, like time travel – all the animals are dead, all this stuff. Like, watching that preview when I was 12 was like, I gotta figure out how to see this fucking movie, even though there's no way my parents are gonna let me. And of course I did, at a sleepover. Oh, mom, dad, you fools. Uh, other parents were not as restrictive of you. And you paid the price pretty big time, I think. <laughs> um, you still saw yeah, the things, you just saw the things in a different context. I saw the things and then had to lie to your fucking faces about what I did at the sleepover. Oh, I was, I don't know, praying. I will, I think that one of the many ways that we're collaborative is that you were the parents who's, you had the parents who wouldn't let you watch anything, and my parents let me watch whatever the fuck I wanted. I mean, that's why we were made to be friends. Yeah. Right? It's because, because you can like, come over and watch the movies for the podcast, and then in the morning, I'll tell your mom that we watched um, Brothers Grimm. Yeah. Yeah, so Terry Gilliam was one of those directors, though, that immediately I discovered him, you know, 99, 2000, when I was really, like, getting into directors in, like, my, you know, sophomore year in high school and, like, you know, reading all this stuff on the internet about, like, uh, and, and connecting the dots that, like, this was a guy who basically only made movies I liked and he was connected to, like, one of the three things that influenced what I think is funny more than anything else in the world. Like, it's not original to say this, but, like, there was something about being in elementary school and junior high, like, seeing Monty Python and the Holy Grail, seeing Spaceballs, and watching Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie. Like, those are the three things that I'm like, I didn't know stuff could be this funny. And just obsessing over all three of those things. And it wasn't until way later that I connected... Monty Python to the films of Terry Gilliam, it made a lot of sense. Like, seeing stuff like Jabberwocky, which is not good, and uh, Time Bandits. And, like, you watch like, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, it almost feels like they shot all three of those on the same sets on the same day in a lot of cases. That aesthetic that Terry Gilliam brought from Monty Python and the Holy Grail into a lot of his earlier stuff, and then I think just his whole, his whole aesthetic of... Everything is a little bit absurd and goofy. And that's what Monty Python was. Like, Monty Python was all about absurdity of comedy. And I think... And, and like, wild energy moving forward as opposed to stopping to pause and recalibrate you with reality. Yeah, and what I think is so interesting about Terry Gilliam is that he... He obviously was... He was the animator. He did writing. He wasn't in much skits. But the thing he took from Monty Python into his movies is he kept the absurdity and a lot of times lost the comedy. Not that his movies aren't funny. Many of them are very funny because of how absurd they are. But he's taking like these other genres like kid fantasy movies, you know, sci-fi dystopia movies, road movies, and these these other things. And then he's he's like – I almost imagine him like writing the story as like a straight line narrative – and then saying, now let's add a bunch of weird, goofy, absurd shit that feels out of place in most other Hollywood mainstream movies. It's, he took the absurdity of Monty Python and grafted it onto other genres. He took his interest from Monty Python era 
that sort of like absurd, soured look at reality and ran sprinting towards all of his other interests, right? And that's what's so amazing about these movies is that like this one is co-written by Michael Palin and it features John Cleese. None of the other Pythons as far as I know, but most of the other actors are just actor actors. They're not from yeah, the Eric Idle's. Yeah, Eric Idle's not in it. Graham Chapman, who was, I believe, still alive. He was definitely still alive. Because Meaning of Life is 84? This, yeah, Meaning of Life is 84. So, like, this was this was sort of Gilliam taking his momentum and running, and he had to independently finance a lot of this movie to get his $5 million budget. Uh, and the movie... The movie looks very expensive, like uh, particularly in the finale. Um, yeah, so the, it's a budget of fifteen million. It does not look like the movie that it is, which is the. It is technically the movie where Terry Gilliam is figuring out how to na- navigate studio systems, and so like you know, it should be like a modestly budget movie. Budget, yeah, it should be a modestly budgeted movie with modest ambitions, but. Um, accomplishes those ambitions really ably. Instead, it's a movie with massive ambitions that it, you know, reaches. But, you know, it, it, it has some failings. But, like, it, movies this early in a director's career are not supposed to be this successful. There's supposed to be a lot more Jabberwockies in here uh, to, before he gets to something like this. Yeah, and, it, I mean, it made $150 million. It was the 10th highest grossing in the United States in 1981, which is crazy. I... I imagine adjusted for inflation, this is his biggest movie. Like, 12 Monkeys did well, but at least domestically, I feel like this is probably his biggest. We could probably look that up. And this must have been a good feather in his cap because this is a movie with... Well, it wasn't though, right? Because that's just so crazy. So, studios didn't want to buy this movie. It's why George Harrison financed it. Yeah. But he still got studio notes on everything. And that's where he's like, fuck studios. George Harrison and the other executive producer... That uh, co-owned Handmade Films, which was put together to finance Life of Brian and then invested in this. Like, George Harrison almost stopped becoming friends with Terry Gilliam because he was so difficult to work with, even in their independent studio. And then, of course, he comes out of this having a huge success and trying to make Brazil. And, you know, there's a whole fucking book about the battle over Brazil. And... How difficult and how much he fought on that. So it's kind of insane that he, even after this, the massive success in this movie, being turned down by all those people, getting into those all those fights with his, you know, friends who were financing the movie about what the movie should be that were in theory supporting his vision. He just like walked away seething with anger at anyone who wasn't going to let him make exactly what his vision looked like. And that worked really well. At the very least for early in his career. Um, But, you know, like a lot of people, at some point, you probably should listen to people around you. George Lucas, Terry Gilliam. There's a lot – tons of examples of of this young energy being turned into, I know what I want, Tideland. (laughs) And and Tideland is such a small movie with small ambitions and it fails them ably. And and this movie is – I think this movie fits interestingly into the Python canon because, like, pretty quickly after this, he started moving away from the rest of his Python cohorts. All of them started having yeah, a Palin's falling out. Palin's in Brazil. Brazil. Palin is in Brazil, and I think Palin was always the nice guy of the group. One so of them's like, in Palin. Yeah, one of them's in uh, Man, uh, Munchausen, right? Uh, Eric Idle. 
Okay. Um, and Idol is Idol and Cleese are the two ones I believe that were causing a lot of the friction. Um, because Chapman died also, which was like a big thing, right? Yeah, he died after the meaning of life. Yeah, Chapman and died of was... HIV AIDS, I think. Um, and that was like another schism in the group. And um, Cleese always, everyone's thought Cleese was like this, like blowhard, you know. Leader he left who... in the fourth season of Monty Python. Yeah, this blowhard. He, who he got, too, he got, yeah, he got too big for his britches and yada yada. Um, which you know is kind of worked out for him because he's still the big he is the most known name from python in america um yeah not but palin, England, also, not so much, palin but. was obviously clearly still fun friends with cleese too because obviously they did uh fierce creatures and uh fish called wanda i'm the only person that's ever named fierce creatures first <laughs> those two I, I heard that and i was like fierce creatures and then i was like oh yeah the movie they made after and then you yeah. said fish called wanda uh yes yeah, like we'll have to do a, a Python episode and do like a proper Python history. We're sort of just jumping around, but yeah. Terry Gilliam movies, I think, do a really good job. And I don't think anything is more indicative of this than Time Bandits is surprising you with how big and amazing they look. You know, Time Bandits kind of starts, it's in this like kid's house, and then you get into like the the Napoleon scenes, which are kind of like, feels like it could be shot on a back back lot. And then they get into the muddy Robin Hood scenes. And you're like, this makes sense. This is a low budget. He's trying to do this thing. It's like a, but it's like a Holy Grail thing. They just walk around in the dirt. They show models of castles in the background. They don't have the budget for most of what they want. The crazy thing about Time Bandits is then it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Until it almost like sneaks up on you like, how did he make this movie so impressive and why isn't it talked about as this special against uh, extravaganza? I think Brazil's the same way. You start out with offices and offices and pretty soon it just keeps getting bigger and bigger so that the the artistry and the vision on display surprises you halfway through the movie in some respects. You're like, oh, holy shit. Did he have a hundred million dollars? Because it started out, it made a lot of sense to me, and now it's like, where, where is all this coming from? How I, did he do all this? I have no idea how he budgeted this fucking movie, especially with these stars that like we still know today. It's got Sean Connery in it. It's got Shelley Duvall, obviously John Cleese. Like, and on the more you know, um, uh, on the more artistic side David of things, Warner. like Ian Holm and Jim Broadbent, like, yeah. All all these people are big names that would be big names for the following 20, 30 years. Like, that's that's crazy. Uh, one last thing before we get into the movie proper, feels like it's worth talking about, about Terry Gilliam, is that he's a very old man uh, who yeah. is best friends with Johnny Depp uh, and sucks. Yeah, um, he, he, um, he fell down a rabbit hole. I think because he sees himself as an outsider artist – I think he resents the idea of anybody telling him what to do in any context. And he because he sees he sees the culture saying, hey, women should be treated with this level of respect. And this is yeah. why we are all taking back this level of respect for women and that uh, or we're, you know, assigning it now and why uh, why these issues are so important to us. And he's like he resents that. 
he's like this outsider artist and like why would you t- yeah. why would you tell me that I can't say this word or this word like and it's not charming there's no way of defending it you shouldn't defend it no he's a grumpy old douchebag who fell out of he 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 lost the muse a long time ago i think and, uh, yeah and, and now I, he hates all women yeah and i think we talked about this doesn't excuse anything but we I feel like we had an episode in the last year where we talked about this just from a – like you see these like Matt Groening and Bill Maher and all these people who for so long, all these people told them that they were offensive or they couldn't do X, right? You know, Groening is a great example, right? It was like Republicans and George H.W. Bush and – the fucking family television council and Bill Don like all those people are like you are bad you are offensive right yeah and at some point I think people just then vision themselves like yep I'm a provocateur I'm offensive that's kind of my brand and these people are idiots and then when you're relevant in art for as long as you know Granick has through the Simpsons and other stuff and again Gervais there's so there's literally so many examples of white men very specifically who who think like this at some point they don't progress with the culture because they just kind of stake these kind of woke and liberal claims for 40 years ago they don't move with the culture and they don't listen to like hey actually this stuff is shitty too it's just we didn't have a voice to call you out on it in 1990 and now we do and instead of recognizing the difference between the fucking Bill Donahue's and uh, focus on the family people and like women trying to exist or, you know, all these people, they're just like, oh, yeah, more people saying what what I'm producing is is uh, and the things I say are offensive. Tell a new story. I've heard it for 40 years. And I just think there's so many examples of people who cannot separate criticism at a certain point. And so all criticism sounds the same. And so they take these stances of, how dare you? I'm an artist and this is what I believe. And it's the culture that's always been crazy. And I've been saying it. And then they do just sound like out of touch old men. Like Terry Gilliam, Matt Groening. Ricky Gervais, Bill Maher, the list literally goes on and on and on and on and on and on. <laughs> it and every sucks about Ricky Gervais is that Ricky Gervais is like in his like he's younger than those people, so he's like he started. But being he an he really thirties. He really glomped on to the I'm a I'm a provocateur offensive thing. So I think that definitely like and some yeah, of these people. Oh my god, he fits perfectly, but he's just the youngest of the batch. It's so depressing. But it is that's why there are so many. They just are like this is my art. People have always criticized things I've said, and I cannot differentiate between not people attacking me for stupid reasons and, like, truly people trying to educate me or whatever else you want to say. And and Gilliam in his 70s is 100% one of those people because – not excusing it, but I'm sure Monty Python and everything else he's done his entire life, he gets, you know, people attacked for it and stuff like that. And he probably is stuck in a case of arrested development where he still sees himself as some 30-year-old fighting against the BBC censorship as opposed to, like, someone who is um, literally leaning into, like, misogyny and um, 
defending like uh, someone who, you know, someone like Johnny Depp. The whole situation is very sad to see like somebody who I think both of us consider like a creative hero go down this uh, rabbit hole of casual misogyny and outright like outrageous misogyny uh, and denying Amber Heard her voice and yada yada. Um, And the point is that he was an artist who contributed so much and even he lost his way like and it's it, it shows you a like maybe don't create these heroes out of ordinary people with fallacies and such um maybe just treat work as something to be praised and praise the artist until the artist is not comfortable to be praised anymore it shows you how much a difference a long career can make on the mind of an artist. I don't know. Did John Cleese like go pro Brexit or something? I, I don't know. Oh no! Should I, See, should I hate John uh, Cleese now? No, but I th- I think that's I think that's a good example. I don't like, know anything about him right now. I think the other important thing is like, yeah, Terry Gilliam is an old man, and I can I think from a rational standpoint can say, oh, I can see why. Someone like that would kind of turn in on himself and basically, like you said, tell on himself that, like, he is kind of awful and hasn't – and, like, again, from a from a practical standpoint, there's a part of me that can see why this would happen to someone while not excusing it. On the other hand, I will say John Cleese, I'm sure, went through that exact thing. And John Cleese is incredibly smart and willing to learn. And just recently, he posted on Twitter, uh, someone uh, said something about, called him a snowflake, and he wrote, Yes, I've heard that word. I think sociopaths use it in an attempt to discredit the notion of empathy. Um, ah, that's good. To, that's actually a really good comparison he, point, then, because I, I didn't know anything about Cleese as a modern dude. Yeah, and he is incredibly, like, willing to listen and learn from what I've seen on Twitter. There may be some examples I haven't seen. Or like you look at like Frank Oz and some of the recent stuff that he's gone through when he at first was like, well, I played uh, Ernie and Ernie's not gay. So sorry that this was these were gay icons to you, but I just I don't know how to tell you this, but they were not gay. And I invented the character. And then all these people were like, well, actually, this is why this means to me. And he wrote this great thing about, oh, yeah, you know what? Maybe just because I originated the character, if you see them as this, I would never try to take that away from you. And I can see, like, I've learned something. You wrote this amazing thing. It's like those are example of these older artists who are still willing to recognize that even if they don't know anything, they're willing to listen when people say in good faith, like, actually, like, it kind of sucks that you said that. Or actually – Calling people snowflakes and acting like um, comedy is above reproach is shitty. And so, you know, those are good counterpoints to the fact that not everyone has to be a Terry Gilliam or a Matt Groening. And go in and turn um, in and turn in and eat your own tail. Yeah. And it's not and, – and again, not an excuse. Like, again, I can kind of see how that could happen to someone. But there's plenty of examples of people who did not take that route. And and it's not an excuse. Yeah, I think that's beautifully put. Um, we need to talk about Time about Bandits. Time though. Bandits. So let me come up with a segue. Um, time Bandits is also a movie that I came to later in life. And I uh, my opinion of it when I was 20 is incredibly different than it is now. And the fact that 
I think it actually has a message for a group of people that are stepped on and downtrodden that it was probably not intended, but I definitely see it there. Um, so let's get to that. Uh, do you want to talk about yeah, Time Bandits with me? Yeah, let's talk more about Timmy Benditos. Timmy Benditos. Alternate time bandit lines. <laughs> uh, I think that worked. I feel good about that. How do you yeah, feel? Yeah, it's good. That's good. Oof. Your standards have gone way down. Uh, no, I was just saying that's good so I could get to the part where I talk. Yeah, you talk. Huh. <laughs> um, um, oh, yeah. It sounds like you were rushing to get there. Yeah. Um, um boy. Hey, hey, kid. You want to see two parents blow up? <laughs> uh, yeah, that is the... That's the movie. God, when do we... When do we even fucking... I don't know what it means. <laughs> like, I, I don't... I don't, like, as a little fuck you... Which, I mean, Terry Gilliam movies have a lot of these kind of like... Bet you didn't expect that! That's fine. Like, if that's all it was, great. If it's supposed to mean something or leave you feeling anything besides, oh, that was crazy. I mean, the whole last act is an, is a de- is a a series of explosions wherein every childhood fantasy is blown up. A spaceship, a tank, uh, a dog, a, a bunch of cowboys, uh, yeah. knights, like everything that little kids love gets blown up and thrown into an abyss at the end. And so, just, I mean, it just makes sense that they would just blow up some parents. I'm glad you also are on the same page as me, where I'm like, I don't know why the parents have to die at the end. I figured it could just be like, the kid learned his lesson through a dream state, and he saw Sean Connery again. Well, yeah, that, but it's what's nonsense. The, it's nonsense. The lesson, I don't even know. Like, the kid is, is very much a cipher just for kids. He He's fine. He clearly feels like he's icy. He's his only child. His parents just sit and watch TV. They ignore him. But, like, to go back to, like, the Return to Oz, Peter Pan type thing, like, he doesn't have as strong as a characterization as, like, most of these kids in these fantasy movies. Like, he's kind of along for the ride. He asks a lot of questions. He's never fully sure what's going on. You know, it seems like he wants a dad, and then they steal him away from Sean Connery, and that's... Otherwise, he's just like, what's this?! What's this now? Yeah, we gotta save my fr- like. You know he does. I really have- like the. I really like the little kid in it. He's adorable. Um, I don't dislike him, and I like that he-, he doesn't have like a core flaw. He's just he is just like going from place to place, as you say. Like he doesn't have a core flaw. He doesn't have anything major to learn. I don't feel like. No, he loves history, and he's being ignored by his parents, who get blown up in the end, presumably in some sort of cosmic way for being bad parents. It's weirdly almost like a Matilda thing, where like I haven't seen Matilda. You've never seen Matilda. No, I own it because I figured it'd be something that Maya would like. P.S. Uh, it's kid appropriate. It's kid appropriate. I watched it when I was Maya's age for sure. 
I, I won't spoil Matilda, I guess, but it, <laughs> thank you. The, 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 the point of the movie is not that her parents become good parents. It's that Matilda learns a lesson of independence and yada, yada. I don't even think he learns that lesson of independence. I don't know. What I think he learns, he learns the movie. lesson that like he got a bunch of friends and met a bunch of wonderful people who are going to teach him some lessons. And then he had all of them stripped away from him. And one of them, one of them didn't, didn't so much just, you know, blow up or, uh, you know, be sent off to a new assignment by the almighty deity. The Sean Connery guy, like, winks and waves as he's going away. Like, that kid must be fucking baffled. Well, the other thing is that even this time, it'd been a while since I, I've seen it. I expected, just because it feels like that has to, fine, the parents blow up, he's all alone, fine. Of course, the time bandits are going to come back through a portal and be like, we need you on another heist or something. Like, nope, it just pans away. Why is he... it? Why does it not end with? Why does it not end with the parents just being I... bored assholes again? And then the time bandits are like, "We need you for one last job." It's perplexing. I forgot that that's how it ended. So I was truly, truly shocked. And I haven't seen this since I don't know college, probably. But yeah, let's let's talk about the plot. There's uh, so much to get into. I don't know if we're going to parse what the fuck that ending is, but uh, regardless. I think so we just start, tried and failed, so let's, yeah, we, let's yeah. go back so around. So let's try eight more times. So yeah, let's go back and around. And never talk about anything else. Uh, so yeah, it starts with this kid. Uh, he lives in a uh, suburb in England. His parents kind of ignore him. He has his own. Uh, he just goes to bed. They watch TV, all that kind of stuff. One night, a knight bursts through his room. He's like, I'm going to catch that fucking knight. <laughs> with a flashlight and a and a camera, and but the next time the time bandits jump through the his closet and say, "Run away, run away!" and they follow him through this passageway, which takes them to Napoleon's time, and they explain that they uh, the supreme deity or God is chasing them, and they helped him, but they're trying to get some money for themselves, so they have this magic map which shows them where all the portals are going to be, so they can hop around in time so they steal gold from napoleon next place they give it to robin hood next place they get separated and um from the time bandits and they end up in where, where does he who's it agamemnon what's uh i, I i've only read the word before uh, agam agamem agamemnon agamem i think it's agamemnon do you pronounce every Agamemnon. everything hard? Yeah. yeah, it is. I think yeah. And he he slays the Minotaur. He's like, "I'm be your dad now, Sean Connery." But then the Time Bands don't know that, so they rescue them. Then they is that when they go on the boat? I feel like I'm missing one thing. And Robin Hood, Robin Hood, Agamemnon, and then it's like saying uh, "see an enemy." It's like an impossible thing to not sound drunk. And then he, and then oh no, and then the Titan, and then the Titanic. Oh, Titanic. So Titanic, um, that's pretty quick. Titanic, and that's how they end up in the water, which gets them to the land to of the legends. Bulk. Yeah, land of legends. Time of legends, excuse me. Yep, with the uh, with the giant, and they eat them, but then they uh, push them overboard. They steal the boat. The boat is actually a hat of a giant, um, and then they end up uh, at the uh, the place where the evil one is held. Uh, the evil one tricks them, puts them in cages. Steals the map, they break out, and then at the end, it is all the different time periods, including some we haven't seen, like cowboys and the future, 
come to fight the evil one. The evil one's like, are you fucking kidding? Like, actually, let me back up. The evil one's David Warner. He's the devil. He's been trapped. He believes that God can be stopped with technology. So he's been very interested in technology where God just cares about fucking trees and stuff like that. So at the end, he fights. He wins because he's like, you brought technology against me. You brought tanks and fucking space vehicles and guns. And I got that. No problem. In the end, God just kind of kills him. And it's like, where have you guys been? Uh, <laughs> and you find out it was all plot by God to test the – it was a stress test for the system that God built. Yeah. And he takes the evil one and mails it. Uh, one of those packages ends up at his parents' house. And when and he gets home and the, his parents blow up. And that is fucking Time Bandits. It's an insane movie. And here's here's one of the other things I really like about it, Peter. It starts out – very much like we're going to go and see these eras of the past, even fictionalized ones, right? You're like, okay, Napoleon, real guy. Robin Hood, eh, based on a real guy, but sure, right? And then, so you just kind of ex- – and then Titanic. But then it goes from like these historical or quasi-historical moments into like full realm fantasy stuff like Giants – uh, even bigger giants with hats on their heads, like demons and all this magic stuff. And I really like that. I like how it – it's kind of what I mentioned earlier, how at first the movie feels like, okay, they have an old castle room and they're shooting Napoleon. And then it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and it gets more and more fantastical. And I love that. I love the way – you almost think it's going to be like a Christian Judeo influence. I wrote that down movie. too. That it's you think yeah. it's going to be this Christian Judeo Christian thing, and it's it's like not. No, and then even just the way they like they make everything seem so weird, right? Like there's the 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 giant imagery. There's the like the force field, which is just like this pane of glass at the end of the world. And then all of a sudden, like, the all the devil stuff is, like, it's, like, a weird, like, monster trapped in this thing. And, like, he's all melded with technology and all his minions are. It, like, it really gets bizarre and fantastical. And it just – it's not what you're expecting from a, a movie. And it does it gradually. Like, it's, like, God, devil, check. Going through time periods. And then pretty soon, yeah, you have this, like – hundred story giant with a boat for a hat crushing these houses of these like wizards or something it's it gets bizarre in the best way so this is a movie that goes to the limits of your your imagination but then oh you write taglines now it welcome yeah it 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 welcomes you to open up your imagination especially imagination for children right and uh the concept of a bunch of like weird thieves going through like time criminals. Um, this is not time crimes though. Going through time and stealing shit and and just basically like they're not there to learn history. This is not Magic School Bus. They're there to like they're there to rob Napoleon almost specifically. Yeah, and then everything else is like a way to try to get their gold back after Robin Hood mistakes it for a donation. To the poor. <laughs> yeah, do not confuse this for some sort of educational tome. It's not. Gilliam has no interest in that. and he. Kn- I think he knows, like 
like I think he believes, like I believe, that films are not very good for educating educating people on literal history. They're good at educating people on historical concepts. Um, and uh, but in this, it's not even really doing that. But anyways, the this is similar to Flight of the Navigator, which we did. That my only disappointment in it really is that it wasn't like a series of adventures. Uh, the end of the movie really I, makes makes me feel like. There's more adventures for Kevin to go on, even though he's well. Hey, fun it, fact, Peter. There's a lot of different time. Yeah, there's so many other times. And so like, many other time. And do you think those guys are really going to behave? I mean, they were pretty quick to be like, "Oh, sorry, God, back yeah. to work." But of course, they're going to suck dick in front of the. <laughs> Let me read your set. Of course, <laughs> of course, they're going to. <laughs> Of course, they're going to grovel in front of the Lord, right? What? But like, you know, those guys are not. <laughs> I, I don't know if we should rephrase that. I think that was so offhandedly um, inappropriate. <laughs> oh, you know, those guys are really sucking God's dick. <laughs> Uh, but like, like they're sitting there they're groveling and and like I think I don't think those guys are gonna stay out of mischief and similar to the end of Flight of the Navigator like you get the sense that this journey is not over and it's sort of disappointing because you don't see the rest of the journey that's the only thing about this movie that I don't like is that like my imagination travels so far beyond the movie that like I want to see more but it's because it's not just that you want to see the different time periods. You want to see Terry Gilliam and Michael Palin's take yes. on those different time periods because one, along with the movie becoming more fantastical, the movie also gets funnier. So the 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 first part is not funny at all, except like the funniness of like, are they watching a TV show of like? Uh, what it's called? Your money or your life? Yeah, and, and Jim Broadbent is a uh, is a TV host, and that comes back around. And it's funny in the way Brazil is funny, where it's like the, it, the shows on the background are like they're like these background Monty Python jokes. Yeah, it's it's like a Dolly sort of dry surrealism where it, he's trying to depict the absurdity of modern life, but it's not being depicted as a, f- a big farce yet. It'll get to farce, but yeah. it's, it's depicting the modern, modern uh, you know, farcical stuff in a, a modern uh, surreality. Sorry. It's depicting the modern absurdity in a very dry way that's not necessarily, like, funny funny. It's more just, like, Terry Gilliam clearly has a resentment for, like, yeah. uh, bored, middle-class... British people who just suck down TV without any recognition of, of, you know, the life around them. Yeah. So it starts out with like kind of that, like not, not funny, funny, but like clever, funny. And then it kind of goes into, which would be boring for kids, by the way. So, so, and then the second like segment with Napoleon, like it's funny Ian Holmes, uh, Ian Holm is really good, but it's not like, you know, it's, it's him very being like, Listing all the other conquerors that were shorter than him. Kind of an obvious joke. Uh, I do love the joke. I do love the the scene where people are, they're trying to please him. And then he goes, they're all freaks. Not one of them under five foot six. (laughs) 
Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. He, he thinks they're all like disgust. Like he doesn't think they're funny because they're not. Like he thinks the puppets are hilarious because they're small. Like he can yeah. relate to them, but he has no time for these like tall performers. Yeah, and that's a good absurdity joke too. Like it's not just like he had up Napoleon complex. Like literally everything and anything and any conversation was viewed through this prism of who was shorter than him, who's taller than him, and everything else. And, like, that's funny. It's a clever take on it, but it's not – I would say it's the least interesting segment and the least funny segment, except that it is – like I said, I honestly think it's trying to expand the world. Like, it's starting small and getting bigger, both in its uh, broadness of its jokes and its and the, its scope of its world. And that's why, like, the next – so the next segment has two parts. One, it's your first look at evil. Just a very, very funny segment. I want to talk about that in a second. But then you get the Robin Hood thing where everything seems kind of the same level of humor. Uh, Michael Palin and, and Shelley Duvall are great. But then you're introduced to Robin Hood. And then it really takes a turn into what kind of comedy you're getting. And I remember that combined with the first David Warner scene was where I was like, oh, wait a second. I love this already. Like, it snuck up on me because the I, I think the – First 20, 25 minutes is so kind of low key and it's like, this is cool. This is good. And then all of a sudden Robin Hood's like this weird bored CEO. The poor are literally just people he keeps behind like these ropes and goes, go say hi to the poor. And then there's the guy punching everyone who takes the money and there's no explanation given. Robin Hood clearly doesn't like it, but understands that I guess – you know, you run a business, you employ some people with their, their stuff. And it's <laughs> and so it's, funny. And it's only funny to me that he punches a woman because he punches people indiscriminately with no extra vitriol. Like, he's just a machine press that's just stamping people. He punches yeah. three people in a row, two men and then a woman. And it's just funny because it has that Monty Python sort of quality where people commit to absurdity with no sense of irony and no yeah. sense of, of uh, uh, grounding it. It's just like, well, this is the weird thing we're doing and it is the only thing I can do. <laughs> Oh, yes, well, you're giving it to the poor. Oh, yes, great. Oh, the poor. Have you met the poor? Oh, they're right here. You must sail. Like that kind of just, I'm a bored corporate person running an organization is such a great Python-esque take on Robin Hood. They also had uh, very famously like a very funny skit on Monty Python about Robin Hood. So that's great. And then the next, so it is right after that is where you first meet David Warner and Evil. And that scene is so fucking funny and you're like – I think that's when the whole movie opens up where you're like, holy shit. I am getting something much different than this kid fantasy adventure travels through time, 80s fantasy movie. I don't even know what I'm getting. I don't know if there's an uh, analog – something that's analogous to this because that David Warner scene has one of my favorite Python-esque gags. So David Warner is like ranting about the Supreme Being and how he actually sucks and he's not that powerful. And someone's like – one of his minions is like, well, but he made you. The Supreme Being made you. And of course, David Warner kills kills this guy for daring to question that saying he didn't make him and blah, blah, blah. And then he's like, any more questions and the most evil thing? And someone then just immediately raised their hand and is like – 
Well, yeah, hold on, though. If he's more powerful, uh, if you're more powerful than him, then why are you stuck down here? And then, of course, David Warner kills him. And that's such a Python-ass joke because it's someone stepping out of bounds, questioning the person, getting killed, and then another person proceeding with a legitimate question, having taken no learnings from the moment that just happened, but just yeah. going, oh, if you're taking more questions, actually, I do have another one. It, it's it, it's a commitment to a bit that goes beyond self-preservation. Yeah. It goes beyond, like, you know, normal ethical bounds, but, like, you need to commit to this bit. And then David Warner explains it with, like, okay, actually, that was a good quest. Like, he still kills him. <laughs> because he's getting questioned but then he like comes up with this like actually it's all part of my big sk-, you know and he kind of commits to that end and he talks about how much he's trying to learn about tvs and vacuum cleaners and stuff that right after that robin hood moment is like what fucking movie am i getting and for me it was like delightful because it goes away from the historical context and it goes – and even like the, 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 the time bandits themselves, which we need to talk about I think like right now, um, the time bandits themselves are dressed in pirate garb and all sorts – in medieval garb, whatever. They're sort of dressed eclectically as much as they can be. But it's all stuff you you recognize, like individual items. It's it's sort of like when you'd have Legos and you'd like just decided like, well, today there's no theme. The ninjas are wearing pirate gear and the the, the aliens are wearing, you know, pirate uh, cowboy gear and yada yada. Uh, it's sort of like that. Like they've been traveling through time and picking up clothes as they go. I think Legos is a really good comparison, especially uh, in my, you know, in my day when it was like they didn't have all this license stuff. It was just like. Castle, pirates, space people. That's how it was for me until like they because they started having these lines that were like specific branded lines they make a big push for. And then um like Life on Mars. Like like Life on Mars, the British cop show. Yeah, it's it's all branded <laughs> after after oh. Yeah, uh, it's all branded. It's, there's a Harvey Keitel figure and stuff. Um, oh, oh, you're doing the. They did the remake segment. Yeah. I forgot they did that. They did yeah. the British original, and then they had the American sequel with all Harvey Keitel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the weird thing about the Harvey Keitel minifig is that it's the only minifig that has a dick. <laughs> <laughs> and he clearly like worked out to make that dick look good it's actually like you know how the arms are separate things mm-hmm. it's the only one that has like a little dick that you insert, <laughs> like it moves why is there a hole in the bottom of this thing uh we, <laughs> there was an accident it's some assembly required guys <laughs> God. We're not we're not building a whole new machine at the Lego factory just to pre-assemble Harvey Keitel's Life on Mars character's dick. It's not happening. The kids are gonna have to put it on themselves. But you think about the merchandising value because after they do the Life on Mars, uh, you know, segment, they can immediately jump into the Bad Lieutenant branding. Yeah, well, exactly. You don't even have to make a new minifig. It's like when they reuse stuff. What was really sad, though, is that they had to cancel the line because Michael Imperioli had to sue. Because they're like, where's my dick? <laughs> oh, Michael Imperioli, you don't get a dick. Ah, license over. Michael Imperioli. And then so Michael Imperioli goes into the office and, and someone's like, uh, I fucked the joke up. Who's the guy that looks like Michael Imperioli? <laughs> uh, all Italians. From Ocean's Eleven. Oh, I don't know. Uh, he's in Godfather 3. Oh, 
I don't know. Untouchables. Oh, yeah, the guy, uh, I forget his name. He was like in eight movies. Andy Dufresne. R- Andy Richter. <laughs> Here's what's amazing. Edit all this. How do I remember that Michael Imperioli was in the American remake of Life on Mars? Like, I don't know. Did I watch that? I don't know. But also, like, he was hot off Goodfellas, right? Michael Imperioli, yeah. God damn he it. He hot off Sopranos. <laughs> well, he was in Goodfellas. Did he get shot by Joe yeah, Pesci? he's spider. He's spider. He gets shot. Yeah. None of this is worth keeping. Anyways, so uh, what was I talking about? I don't know. I think the Harvey Keitel minifig is good. <laughs> so, so, okay. So, uh, oh, so yeah. And then I imagine audiences when they got to the scene with evil and it looks like a, a Junet movie. It's like pipes yeah. and tentacles. It's like H.R. Geiger light and it's comedic and he's got like a bubbling cauldron. Like it's sort of... Gillian, it's all disparate, but it all fits. Like, Gilliam devised his own little H.R. Geiger Satan, and for some reason, it makes sense. And Yeah, and imagine how prescient this was, that, like, this idea of the devil using technology at a time pre-Twitter. Oh, my God, yeah. He was was right on base. It was a home run. Uh, Yeah. And, and when you get to that scene, it's probably baffling. But for me, that scene was like, holy shit, he's got more tricks in his bag. And that's that was what made it so wonderful for me. And there's like a straight up adult swim joke in it when he says uh, he's talking about <laughs> right now I'm learning uh, digital watches, next video recorders and soon computers. <laughs> like he's he's trying to learn yeah. it all. And then he's got this great line where he goes. If, if I were the ultimate being, I would have started with lasers. Eight o'clock, day one. Like, that, yeah, that is a Aqua Teen Hunger Force joke before Aqua Teen Hunger Force existed, right? Well, exactly. And then it goes on to this full-on Monty Python sket. Sket. I could have gotten sketch or sket, and I'm like, how about a sket? Uh, a sket. Um, and then that goes right into Titanic, where you see Michael Palin and Shelley Duvall's characters, who apparently exist across time frames, having the same argument from the Robin Hood one, and it is, it is so much at once. It like it's not a slow movie, but it is just like like the Napoleon scene. I think is the longest, and I I I really do believe that that was to set your expectations for this is going to be mildly humorous. It's going to be see these historical figures. You're going to get these actors playing these historical figures. And the time bandits are going to have a specific goal in each time period. And then they throw that out midway through the second segment and then everything changes. And then it just keeps adding on because then right after the Titanic, now there's giants and now there's bigger giants. And now it it is so it is so good at how it just it just keeps building out its world both from a setting standpoint and what what is what is around, but also from a like tone standpoint like i feel like any movie that is this crazy needs to start with a crazy set piece to let you know yeah whereas like i think the horse running through the bedroom it which is happens in whatever the first five minutes um yeah that could be the beginning of a return to us style fantasy which is or you know a labyrinth or whatever it could be yeah it could be something that is you know weird and crazy but it, it is ultimately like working within a certain construct this and it's taking it's taking the moment seriously i should say the characters themselves are taking that moment seriously like it's not it's not, it's not deconstructing 
Like, look at this dumb horse coming through it. And then 30 minutes later, it's it's making jokes about everything you're seeing. Uh, and it is like, oh, wait, where did that come from? Yeah. It's uh, – and then when it finally gets to the David Warner thing, you're like – you realize that the more chaos that gets injected into this movie, the funnier it's going to be. And you're right. By the yeah. end, it's like an outright – like cartoonish fantasy it's it the pythonianness is showing more yeah this movie works better by having 30 minutes of like this will be a slightly comedic kids adventure movie before it goes off the rails and then keeps going further and further off the rails into something else if it had started with absurdity and joke you can't get invested in this kid you can't get invested in this adventure and that's fine if you're watching a mel brooks type movie where the scenes themselves are only joke delivery moments but i think what this movie does that's so subversive is because it it presents its adventure in this one way that even when it does go into full absurdity in a lot of the scenes later on, you are still, like, kind of locked into kids' adventure movie. So, you don't stop caring about any of the characters. Like, you still feel peril when evil is turning them into pigs and blowing up dogs and stuff like that. Even though that whole scene is fucking completely insane and funny, by by making you invest in the first act, it somehow doesn't like no one thinks of time bandits as a parody movie but it contains many many scenes that would match that definition under any circumstances but i think it's because it it does it springs it on you so that you you've already built in that investment to everything else going on that no parody lets you do because you're immediately recognized that like dark helmets a joke you know the gene wilder is is a goo like you know Young Frankenstein, all like li- I'm just listing Mel Brooks movies, but same with like King Arthur and Monty Python. Like no one's invested in King Arthur. You realize immediately he's absurdly running around without a horse and coconut shells, uh, yelling out if they've seen the Holy Grail and having arguments about bird flight. Like this does something different by allowing the same types of jokes at moments, but springing them on you when you're after you've already been invested in everything. And it, it is far more unexpected than – I think we gave Labyrinth a lot of credit, uh, credit that is due to it. We gave Labyrinth a lot of credit for um, – Having these Python-esque jokes. Yes, having these absurd, goofy little jokes, these Pythonian jokes, which are great. They're great. Uh, it's a super funny movie and it, it, it's unexpectedly funny in a way that like I think has helped it survive – uh, the nostalgia purges that happen every few years, right? Well, it's so, also why we're not like doing Dark Crystal. Like Dark Crystal, which is like the achingly sincere version of that, while it has a lot of cool visuals, it like just hasn't held up the same way because it's so fucking boring. Yeah. I haven't even seen it before because I basically trusted you to let me know whether or not to watch it and I just didn't watch it. Um, um, but yeah, so we, can we talk about the fucking Time Bandits? Yeah, let's talk about the Time Bandits. So, the movie's the headlined TVs. by dwarves, and they are the heroes of the movie. Uh, Kevin is mostly along for the ride. He occasionally offers advice and help. Well, honestly, hold on. Is dwarf the right word? Dwarf's the right word, right? I thought it's little people. Dwarfism is still used. Hold on. I'm I'm Googling it. 
I don't want to. We can sit. I mean, half my notes use the word dwarf, so maybe we should probably look this up. So the term dwarf, little person, LP, and person of stored stature are now generally considered acceptable by most people affected by these disorders. Okay, that is still good information because I will use I will use little person and dwarf and lean towards little person when the context makes sense. Um, so yeah, so the amazing thing about this movie that's full of uh, absurd moments and fantasy is that it's headlined by a team of heroes that are all little people. They all have their own unique personalities. They all have their own their own sense of agency. They're all funny in their own unique way. And the tragedy is that when you – I looked up the IMDb of each one of them. And because there are six members of the Time Bandits squad. I think seven. I think there's one that's only in one scene. There was this whole thing on something I was reading about about – one that got cut out or quit or something. So six is probably right. Okay, probably so six core them. members, let's say, yeah. of, of the, the squad. And uh, they all have their own personality. Their leader is Randall, uh, played by a guy named David Rappaport. He has this, like, braggadocio and, and a sense of uh, uh, quickness, quick-wittedness that none of them have. They're all – but the, the thing about them is they're all treated with – some semblance of respect and dignity, despite the fact that this is in an absurd comedy. The only person that calls attention to it at all or mentions it, not that it's something you can't mention, is like Napoleon. Otherwise, they're just treated as characters. Yeah, I think I think evil calls them uh, little man, like one of them, little man. You silly little man. Uh, and like, other than that, like they're they're not. Um, they're not laughed at for existing. They're treated as human beings yeah. when they go from place to place, which is awesome. And they're not – and, like, as much as I love Game of Thrones and I love Peter Dinklage and also I love Elf, they exist in a context wherein they need to address the fact that one of the characters is small. And in this, they do it, but they do it in the sense where they're like, well, since they're small, they can be part of this weird play for Napoleon. And since they're small. <laughs> yeah, since they're small, Napoleon likes them because he's taller than them. And That's like the extent. They're not making comedy out of like the way they walk or the way they talk or anything. They're making comedy out of the fact that like there are heroes and our heroes say funny lines and our heroes sometimes do stupid things, but they don't do anything they're not the bumbling clowns in the movie. It's an absurd movie. Everyone in the movie does bumbling clown things except for Kevin. <laughs> yeah, and even the one joke about the Napoleon stuff is 100% directed at Napoleon's insecurities. Like, 100%. He, he, like, that. that's the joke. The joke is never at the expense of our time bandits. So yeah. Napoleon has such insecurities that he's having dinner with everyone and literally just going five foot zero. That was Alexander the Great, four foot nine. I mean, it's like he literally is incapable of thinking about anything else, which is, again, the 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 uh, idea of the Napoleon complex taken to its um, absurd uh, lengths. But, yeah, it's, it's really to the – you know, it's just one of those things that literally – and I even think David Warner's little man, like that's something that evil says to anyone like in that sort of puny-like way, like, you are puny to me. Yeah. It's not used as a – and even if it is, he's he is literally called evil. Like, yeah. there's no characters that we approve of. Kevin treats them with respect, but is also like, these guys are a little nuts. 
But when they ever abandon him or like are moving away from him, he's like, I need to rejoin my friends. Like he sees them as as peers, as, as human being equals. And I love that the movie and I'm sure that this movie was controversial or has become controversial in some circles. But I really I did. I did some I did some looking into it. And I think but I, I can see why it wouldn't be, because I think you hit the nail on the head. I can't think of another example that doesn't feel the need to crack some jokes at their expense, even if their characters were supposed to be rooting for. Like, like I love Freaks, but Freaks is a movie that is very much about a group of circus performers embracing the fact that they're cultural outsiders and they use the word freaks and like there's something empowering in that words. I mean, I don't want to say it, but like sort of like how black people took back the n-word for themselves like there was like a, a sense that like these outsiders with certain disabilities yeah, these, or different, these terms, different abilities yeah these terms of derision being like embraced as an identity as a way of um dulling its its power to to hurt yes and and also in freaks it's not all little people it's people with specific uh you know, mental disabilities or physical disabilities. And, and, and the term freaks is sort of a um, a uh, umbrella term for all these people joining together and finding that rejected by society and, in some way. Yeah. And, that, and freaks is an awesome movie that, like, I think has been misunderstood and, and whatever. Time Bandits, I don't know where the misunderstanding would come from, except for just that everyone in the movie is silly and therefore the little people are also a little silly. And I don't even necessarily blame all the movies, although I'm sure a lot of them could take could take a level of blames of like, well, it's that thing that like kids do to bullies, right? That you're almost taught to do to bullies. Like, I was watching some Full House episode the other day, and like, you know, Stephanie Tanner is wearing glasses, and the advice all her parents, all her parents, everyone in the house is basically her parents. <laughs> yeah, her nine um, dads and her, her, uh, and, and, Re- and Rebecca. Three step mom girlfriends. Their advice is, hey, they can't make fun of you if you make fun of yourself a bunch. <laughs> like, and that, and I remember that being so common. Like, hey, before kids can make fun of you for having braces or something like that, make a bunch of jokes so you know you also know it. You're you look stupid and. And I feel like even movies that have intentions towards not – like they're like, well, we better make the jokes and acknowledge that these are little people or these are X or Y or all the other things and then we can move on with the movie. And this movie doesn't do that at all. It is like, nope, the only person who notices it is Napoleon because he is literally obsessed with this. Otherwise, they are just viewed as our protagonists and our heroes, and they have this bond with this. And yeah, I just can't think of another example that doesn't feel the need to make its own jokes, whether because it literally is trying to mock or um, or it's trying to deflect uh, mocking from moviegoers. I think you perfectly set me up for a rant right here. And it's that little people in general have a very hard time in Hollywood not A – playing a role with um, low dignity, B, yeah. playing a role where they actually get to play characters and use their face, C, have some sort of internal life, uh, sex life, uh, uh, goals, wants, uh, ambitions, yada, yada. Just going down the list, just a, a character with agency, uh, a character yeah. with uh, a character with a sense of um, uh, in, internal consistency that might be different from the other 
characters with dwarfism or little people around. Um, what else? Like there's there's so many there's so many things that little people actors in Hollywood have to suffer under. And like you feel like Peter Dinklage is a genuine hero for having survived. Oh, and uh, Warwick Davis, genuine heroes for having survived through that system because the system was trying to either root them out or find them a small crack to exist in where their dignity, their self-respect, their 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 artistic striving to be a fucking actor would be stepped all over. Yeah. Is there anything I missed there that you like No, I I think you're right. Like I haven't seen Willow in a long time and I know we almost debated covering it, but like I think Willow makes a bunch of shitty jokes. And I and again, I think that's where Time Bandits deserves to be praised of like it never goes low. And uh and it easily you know, it's something that again, I just I can't think of another example. I can't like, either. And I, I have and, a I have a really good um argument for this. These are actors, all of these people in this movie, the little people, are actors that worked entire careers as, you know, successful actors and, you know, little people as well. Uh, Almost all of them, I believe, like, had longer careers, Uh, except for one of them. Um, Just really did one other movie, basically. Uh, And I'll go through the names. So, David Rappaport... Uh, was Randall was the leader. So David Rappaport, what has he got? Um, he was he in Turkish Delight. He played dwarf. <laughs> in he he was in the Young Ones, uh, the TV that like a British TV show, and he was you know he had bit parts here. Like David Rappaport was probably the most successful of all these because he did a lot of British TV, but like not enough for how talented he is. The rest of the actors have a, have. A very sad, I think, IMDb. Um, Kenny Baker played fucking R2-D2. So, like, you know, that is an awesome thing to be. He probably, I hope, he got a bunch of fucking money for it. Yeah, but like with a lot of these parts, like, no one, unless you're a Star Wars nerd, like, no one's like, holy shit. No, Kenny Baker, that's R2-D2. Like, a lot of those parts are like, oh, you can play these alien creatures because... Like, it, it almost feels like they're used as a special effects tool sometimes. Yep, and that is where I'm going. Uh, Kenny Baker was in uh, what R2-D2. Um, he was in Flash Gordon and Labyrinth. Malcolm, Dixon's, uh, Malcolm Dixon played Strutter. He was in Flash Gordon, Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, Willow. Uh, Legend, Dark Crystal, Flash Gordon, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, Jack Purvis uh, was in Mona Lisa. That's a that's one of the outliers here. He played a, a husker, um, and uh, he was in Labyrinth. Baron Munchausen. That's about it. Uh, Tiny Ross was basically in this and Flash Gordon for notable roles. I don't know if you caught some deja vu there. These are mostly the same set of movies. They all yeah. were basically playing background dwarves or ogres or goblins or Jawas or. Uh, gnomes or fucking just like all their faces would be covered up or they would be in the background of a scene or out of focus like none of them were in any performance in a film i will say uh obviously david rapaport was in some some tv and got to play some some bigger characters but none of them were in any major film that has a sense of 
um, little people having a sense of dignity and little people getting to play actual characters and also not having to wear a bunch of fucking makeup or be in a box. And I'm not saying R2-D2 is not a respectable role. What I'm saying is none of them got even I, – I would love for them to play dwarves in Flash Gordon. Yeah. And then, and then go on to be like fucking, you know, Bob in Ordinary People or, you know, Cousin Vito in Godfather or wh- whatever needed to happen in that, in that you know, 20, 30, 40, 50-year cre- career. My point here is this. Time Bandits was the one thing in their entire career – where they got to be use their actual faces, play actual characters, get screen time, close-ups, two-handed sh- two-handed shots of two characters exchanging a, a bit of lines. There's this really great exchange where uh, uh, David Rappaport is David Rappaport turns to one of them and he says, "Do you want to be the leader of this gang?" Um, and then one of them goes, we agreed, no, no leader. And then uh, David Rapport goes, right, so shut up and do as I say. <laughs> like, there's a great, there's all these great little exchanges where characters are, like, telling you who they are as characters. It's not making fun of them for being little people. And that's wonderful. That's, like, my favorite part of the movie. And my my thesis about this movie is that... They were underappreciated. The Time Bandits themselves were underappreciated members of God's gang doing shitty work for them, for him. They got, uh, in quotes, like, you know, they got, uh, you know, uh, bigger than their britches. They they decided to reach out and try and, like, uh, have their own sense of agency out in the world and, you know, make their mark and, and get, their, get the, theirs, basically. And then God steps in <laughs> and hampers and then stamps down on them and then puts them in their place and puts them back in their bureaucratic positions of, of nonsense. And that is a depressing, but very like my very real interpretation of how this movie fits. Because for most of these actors, this was the only movie they got to do in their career that had a full sense of dignity where they got to use their actual faces and do acting, acting. Yeah, I think that's great. I, I think that's a really good interpretation of it. I don't know if it's like purposeful. Um, I can guarantee it's not. I can guarantee Terry yeah. Gilliam just liked the idea of casting dwarf actors to add a sense of absurdity to it. But in yeah, a and I parlance, think I it think fits for me. Yeah, no, I agree one hundred percent. I will say, I mean, just to kind of sum it up, it is in general extremely insulting that it's like, okay, well, uh, little people, you you can be characters. In fantasy movies, <laughs> yes. like it's all fantasy movies, yeah. um, which is special or comedies, which is a very like these are the only two scenarios we can see uh, you showing up in either because you're the butt of the joke in comedy, like Austin Powers and some of those other ones, um, and the or, whole mini me thing was basically like, just there to make fun of I wonder Doctor Moreau, like he was not. He was a, yeah, a, a, yeah. a human being that was turned into a physical punchline and they got no lines. Yeah. And I mean, there's so many examples like that. Or the other examples like, well, in this fantastical world that doesn't resemble our own, you can be uh, functioning characters that do stuff like, yeah, it's incredibly insulting all the way around. Um, but yeah, this is a great showcase where, again, the movie at no point um, – Use them as a punchline in the way that, and especially like, I I feel like that's 
rare now. It, we're not too far removed from poor Warwick Davis having to work with Ricky Gervais on a show about how funny little people are. Oh um, yeah, like I like in, I don't blame him. He got to be a sitcom, but it, like you know, he was on an HBO show and he was the star. And I did watch it. I remember watching a couple episodes in it, uh, and he's very funny in it. But it the it's surrounded by Ricky Gervais doing nothing but making jokes about his height. Um, and Warwick Davis is an incredible actor. Like, say what you yeah. will about the fucking Leprechaun movies or Harry Potter or whatever, but like, he is always showing up with an actor's sense of respect for the role, even if yeah. the role seems silly to you. Yeah. So he's, I mean, he's really good in that show. I do feel like that is one of the areas where like society as a whole is still like, it's okay to point and laugh. Uh, yeah. 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 Yeah, but this is this is a movie from 1981 that is like it it never does it 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 yeah, I mean I I guess I never even thought of it in that context which is probably why we're spending some time on it, but just because like I just I've been part of me is probably I feel like just uh, spinning my wheels while I try to think of another example and I can't think of one. So yeah, so I uh just to sort of put a a pin on that like I, I can't think of a movie – I would love to hear if someone has a better example, but like a movie where uh, dwarfism or little little people in general playing uh, act, playing a character is not played as, as some sort of uh, joke and it's played on a scale – like this because i feel like yeah. i feel like time bandits like you know say what you will about the fact that it's in a fantastical setting the fact that it's in a fantastical setting actually allows for them to avoid a lot of questions no one asks why there's all these little people around <laughs> they just go like oh yeah you're people and you're here and you happen to be shorter than me which is like yep. exactly how like a real movie should be um and yes terry gilliam probably did it just because it's it's an extra layer of absurdity but he chooses to never play for the easy joke yep no it's perfect i just have one little moment and then we can wrap up i feel like we hit so much of this going through how it changes and stuff like that um i really at this point it's been overdone a little bit uh, it still works for me almost every time. So lazy Hollywood screenwriters. God is this kind of old corporate guy who is very ungodlike is always very funny to me. I think part of the reason it works for me is just because I was raised in a certain way of like God, the all powerful. So like putting him down to like, uh, Hey, why do you need evil? And he's like, uh, I, I don't know. Yeah. I think it's something to do with free will. Anyways. Let's get the evil back out there. Like that kind of, I'm just going through the motions too. And I don't have all the answers uh, type depiction of God is very funny. And uh, this, this has a lot of good jokes on that level. Yeah. All the Satan God stuff is, is just great. Just literally just, just two people with just different interests um, debating and trying to prove which interest will, uh, will pull out. Uh, yeah, I love I love that depiction of God. And I, I, I love when they're finally like, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Why do we need evil? Why? Uh, free will? Yeah. All right. Well, back to this. I, I love that because it is uh, – this is the beginning of his Brazil thing where Terry Gilliam hates business systems and governmental systems that rely on bureaucracy so much that he is going to create an entire – like 
arc about how much he hates them. He hates people that aren't leaders. He, he hates people that aren't leaders that just say like, well, that's not my current position at the time, so I'm going to reroute you to this system. And that is what God is in this. Like, God is almost like the head of a – he's the CEO. He's, he's, he's the head of a, a bureaucracy and he's like, well, we need to have this system in place because otherwise how would I deal with this problem? And you're like, that's kind of a shitty solution, but also don't fire me. Um, <laughs> well, even his stress test on the system is never really explained. Like, oh, no. What's stress test on it the was system? Some, he was like, well, like a I thing always, that he needs to do. He's yeah. like, I always conduct a stress test at the end of Q2, obviously. Yeah. Exactly. And then when people are like, well, why are you setting all these pieces back up again? Isn't it better this way? He's like, yeah. yeah. I don't know. It's my job. Like, he doesn't explain and, his rational, rational bleh, he doesn't explain his rationalization and like you don't really and he doesn't even know his rational like you you can tell he hasn't put that much thought into it it's just a thing he did yeah and it's it's a great little bit of and it reminds me of the Pythonian sort of uh, agnosticism atheism which is not a militant atheism it's it's basically like this whole belief system is very absurd and so we're gonna like really lean into it and show you like like in life of brian like yeah they're gonna we're gonna break some we're gonna break some eggs to make an omelet um well and some of it is just like life brian has a lot about like how the rituals of religion that no one can explain are ridiculous on their faith and once they're questioned everyone's like wait why are we doing this and it, it pulls the whole thing it's like it's not against god it's like all these things that have just been passed down that no one gives two seconds of thought about how ridiculous it could be in a vacuum. Um, that's that's what a lot of that and hypocrisy are like the two things Life of Brian is about. So I'm, it's great to see those little threads. And you're right, like the corporate god that's supposedly all powerful and people have their trust in when you find out he's just, yeah, that's, I just, I don't have a master plan. Yeah. The, the plan I am all powerful plan. and I can do whatever I want, but, but, I don't even really – a god that's lacking in self-awareness is very funny. And, of course, that goes to Brazil, which is where, like, there is an entire corporate structure that fucking nobody knows why they're doing all of it. And nobody ever sees the people that are truly benefiting from it. It's just, like, how all the pieces ended up connecting. It's a really great way of putting it. I really like this movie. I think it's unique for all the reasons we said. It really – it doesn't feel of a piece with the the Princess Brides and the Dark Crystals and the Willows and Labyrinth and Return to Oz. Like it – even though in on paper, if you just were to lay out all the elements, it fits all those wonderfully. It's why we did it this month. It does feel different and unique. It's not my favorite of all those. Like I, I really love Labyrinth. I really love Return to Oz. I never any story is way up there, but it, it's pretty high up there in just terms of like just just something that I've just never seen before in a few different respects. So I really love this movie. Um, if you haven't seen it and you're like me and we're like somehow conflated it with all the other terribly cheap fantasy movies, fantasy movies they marketed to kids in the 80s, I would give it a chance. If you change your mind. Oh, no. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, I didn't – I didn't get to talk about some stuff. Um, but I'll – all right. I'll, I'll come up with a good rap right now. Um, yeah. Include the stuff in your rap because we're over time. We are. Um, what I love about this movie is that it is able to access so much about the human experience for both kids and adults. And – 
if it has one sin, I think that it actually lands on the level where I think uh, adults would find joy in it as a sort of way to um, audit their dream past. Like it feels almost like more in line with like Akira Kurosawa's dreams than it does with or, you know. um, Yeah, I can attest as a kid having a kid that really loved uh, Labyrinth, uh, not a good kids movie. Yeah. And it's it's a movie that's very much about how we look back at our dream life as adults and how we look back at history. But like, um, it is also a kid's movie. I think like certain kids could like it. Um, but it's not for every kid, it's but not for four year olds. No, it's like a, t- it's a 10 year old. I think at least a 10 year old who is kind understands of understands absurdist comedy. Yeah. A 10, 10 year old, huge Mr. Show fan. But, uh, th- there is a sense of, Looking back at the past in this movie and like how we as children view our dream worlds and that there's this actual like dream magic to be accessed and that watching this movie as an adult made me feel like I was accessing that dream magic that when you're a child, like you're taking all of this information flooding in all the stimulus and a stimuli, I should say, and uh trying to condense it into something and history doesn't make sense when you're that young because it's just like shit is just flooding in and like as you're processing it it's just nonsense so yeah um from that perspective i love the fact that it's like a historical it's, it's just like uh, ap- apocryphal stuff like napoleon was actually like the average height for a human being at the time um and that uh, Agam- Agamemnon stuff is awesome because, like, it's just, like, giving kids a little bit of what they want, which is badass sword and sandal fights. Like, that fight is as badass as anything on Game of Thrones. Yeah. Um, it's, it's so direct and so violent and so surprising. Um, there's that sense of, of uh, adventure and whimsy goes throughout the whole movie. And, you know, obviously it does it does do the Return to Oz thing where... All the members of the final battle are toys that were in Kevin's room, which is something I've never noticed before. Yeah. Um, And that, you know, Kevin's parents show up in the fantasy realm and yada, yada, yada. It does the Return to Oz thing, but it doesn't do it to set up some sort of theory that like, was this real? Was this not? It does it because children in their dreams soak in all this extra information from history and what they've been told and the the people that they've met in their world. And I love it for that. It captures a sense of childhood whimsy that this movie can go fucking anywhere. And as it goes on, it does. It goes to wilder and crazier places. And that's why I love it. Yeah, it's really, it's great. Um, But this is the end. Speaking of having to grow up and move on from childish and fantasy things and our toys, it's time to to move on to February. Is it the end or the beginning, though? It's the beginning of the end of the beginning. Much like that very famous Smashing Pumpkin song from the end of Batman and Robin. Uh, <laughs> I think it's definitely the end. Oh, but I was just wondering uh, yeah, if you thought it was the end or the beginning. It's the, it's the, I think it's the beginning of something. Because if you thought it was the beginning, I would send you a calendar because it's the Jesus end of... Christ. Jesus Christ. It's not like no new bits at wrap up. You know I mean? <laughs> <laughs> That's the new rule. No, no bits. You're lucky to no. have me awake. Okay. Oh my gosh. I know. So don't be. That's the thing. These bits are all half-assed when they come. Like maybe we, we've said too much serious things. Throw it a joke. No, 
Let me just fucking announce next month. So anyways, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Put away childish things. Love is in the air. We're doing a romantic comedy month, but we're doing a very specific one. It's it's America's very specific sweethearts. We're doing Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks movies. Uh, and we're starting next week with Joe versus the Volcano. Then uh, Sleepless in Seattle with best friend of the show, Carrie Nelson. That that felt as petty and middle schoolish as I didn't mean it to be. So we'll say really good friend of the of many best friends. Carrie Nelson is gonna be on Sleepless in Seattle, and David Clark is gonna be on You've Got Mail. And then we're actually ending it in a weird one. So the frame up for the month is that we're gonna do the the three Meg Ryan Tom Hanks collabs. Uh but we're gonna end it with uh Tom Hanks. And Meg Ryan did other romantic comedies uh, that weren't When Harry Met Sally. And they didn't work as well. So we're doing uh, Money Pit. We're ending the month with the Money Pit and IQ double feature, which are uh, kind of bigger movies and pushes for their their stars in the romantic comedy genre, but without their, their, kind of the person that... Um, they're most associated with and how they work. I've never seen the Money Pit, and I remember liking IQ. So, I, I think I think we truly mean this. But I saw IQ like when it came out in 1995. I think we're we're truly trying to end it on a little bit of an experiment of like how well do they work outside of uh, Hanks and Ryan. So that is our February. We're very excited. Uh, so yeah, I think we'll get out of it with two. Uh, who knows where we're going to land on Money Pit and IQ. Uh, if you've never seen IQ, it's the one where Albert Einstein helps Meg Ryan and Tim Robbins fall in love. And the Money Pit is Shelley Long, I think. And they buy a house. I, I have they, seen they almost none of these movies. So. Except you've, for You've Got Mail. Oh, you... Holy shit. What? I've seen... You have you not seen mail. Joe vs. the Volcano? Not in totality. I remember the very depressing beginning and then him getting to the <sighs> island. Oh, my God. I think you're going to love it. I'm very excited now. I'm glad that's a, I that's a I, Pete and Aaron joint. I think I, like, fell asleep watching Joe vs. the Volcano at, like, an Airbnb on a TV because I was like, well, I don't have Netflix access. Yeah. I did not know that you've never seen – I thought you said last night that you had seen Sleepless in Seattle. If I did, I was a liar. Carrie, check the chat lock. <laughs> or maybe you refuse to answer. Uh, I, um, I think I've seen part of Sleepless in Seattle. It ends at the Space Needle, right? Uh, I don't think so. Then I, I haven't seen, seen it. It ends somewhere. Are they like, are they like if you really love me, meet me at the top of the Space Needle? I, I honestly, I don't. I, I haven't seen it since VHS. Um, I'm so excited to do this month because... It's so I think different. And I think so many... I, th- I think you and I secretly, we talk about being horror boys. We talk about being, you know, canon movie boys. We talk about 80 genre hits. I think we're secretly rom-com lovers. There's a lot of rom-coms I like and even more. And rom-coms occupy this great space, which I think we're definitely going to get into on You've Got Mail, where it's like, do I want to – do anything but just watch this movie and, and stare at it without having to engage in it with any way and just kind of be drawn out by charm. Like you put in You've Got Mail or you put in a lot of these other ones. Like there is a ask of you of like horror movies to pay attention so that you can get absorbed in the creepiness or like in 
an action movie where it may be a little bit exhausting or like a uh, like a really good foreign drama to really like, okay, I got to focus. I'm going to have to read subtitles. You know, I'm going to have to get a certain level. There is something to be said for I can put on You've Got Mail at any time and I'm just going to watch it and be beaten relentlessly by charm. And that's it. And that's just going to carry me through. And that's all I need. That's all I need on that day, Peter. And I will give it to you. X going to give it to <laughs> Knock, knock. Well, Pete's uh, going to give it to you. What? Pete's, Pete's going to give it to you. What? Molly. <laughs> <laughs> and the show. <laughs> what? Sorry? We need to get off the line right now? Yeah. All right. Let's. But as with all fantasy months, it's time to wake up, Peter. What? Peter. You you need to go to your job at the Soul Crushing Factory. <laughs> the next movie is basically a, a perfect bridge. What are you doing in my room? Fantasy. I thought I we were recording this over Audacity and Skype. My wife and I had a big fight. I live here now. <laughs> well, that's that's probably something you should ask someone before you just move in. Hey, well, why? Hey, good good night. I'm turning off the light. Good night, Peter. We gotta go to sleep. I'm going back. We to got sleep work now. in the morning. <laughs> Yeah, it's sleepy time. Please go to sleep. Good night. <laughs> and good night to you all. You're not, you only have to live here. Oh, it's already pretty crowded. <laughs> <laughs> if I could turn back time, if I could find a way, I'd take back those words that'll hurt you, and you'd stay. I don't know why I did the thing. I don't know why I said the things I said Rides like a knife, it can cut deep inside Words are like weapons, they wound sometimes I didn't really mean to hurt you Thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. Thank you so much for listening to our show. And we've got just a few quick announcements for you. There ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs, baby. If you'd like to talk to us, uh, tell us we're stupid. Tell us we're beautiful. The quickest way to get to us is our Facebook group, facebook.com slash we love to watch or our website, wltwpodcast.com. Leave us a comment. Tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, we don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. 
I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available if you don't use iTunes. We're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, TuneIn. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. (laughs) That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, Let us know what you guys are thinking. And again, above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch.